nothing that tugs at our heartstrings quite like the feel-good forgiveness story at the end of the evening news. The stories go something like this. Person A offended person B, and after person A was caught, arrested, processed, maybe tried and become guilty, the family of person B, or person B themselves, will forgive person A. This story is usually tucked in at the end of the news, just before Wheel of Fortune starts. 30 minutes of doom and gloom, followed by a dopamine pick-me-up, so that the next evening, you'll sit down, turn on the news, and start the process all over again. In June of 2015, there was one such story like this. Dylan Ruth entered Mother Emmanuel African Episcopal Church in Charleston, South Carolina. He entered the church on a weeknight. He was welcomed into a Bible study. They made a space for him in the circle. There was a chair for him. He sat there in, Bible, in the Bible study, but before he left the building, he killed nine people and wounded another. Dylan Roof was arrested, processed, and then appeared before a judge for a bond hearing. Bond hearings, if you don't know, happen pretty quickly after someone is arrested and processed. At this hearing, Nadine Collier, she was the daughter of one of Ruth's victims. She stood before the court, she looked at Dylan Ruth, and she said this, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I'll never talk to her again. I'll never, ever hold her again. But I forgive you. Another family member stood up before the court, looked Dylan Roof in the eyes, and said this, I acknowledge that I am very angry. Our family is a family built on love. We have no room for hating. So, we have to forgive. Hearing stories like this in the evening news or reading them in the Washington Post reminds us that in the face of sin and death, the grace of God is at work. Even in situations where we are unsure if we ourselves could respond with forgiveness. There was a king. And this king wanted to settle his accounts for whatever reason. It's time to balance the books. One by one, the servants came into the king's office and settled what they owed. One servant was brought in, and this servant owed 10,000 talents. What you need to know about 10,000 talents is it's anywhere from 10 million to 15 million dollars, or in Bible talk, a gazillion dollars. This is a debt that would take a lifetime and then some to repay. But the king is expecting payment in full now. We feel sorry for the servant. You felt sorry for the servant when you heard his situation. Our hearts become strangely warmed when we hear that the servant falls to his knees asking for pity and for the king to be patient. He'll repay the debt. 
He promises. But before a payment plan can be established, the king does something unexpected, fully forgiving the debt that was owed. Then, the debt-free servant leaves the king's office. He sees a fellow servant who owes him a day's wages. And he demands to be paid on the spot. He has to settle his books for whatever reason. But if this fellow servant asks for pity, asks for patience, says he will repay the debt, the payment needs to be paid in full today. And because this servant is unforgiving, he orders that his fellow servant be thrown in jail until the debt is repaid. And to think, you all were on that guy's side at the beginning of the scripture reading. So the king gets word of what happens and sends this wicked, unforgiving servant to jail to be tortured until the debt is repaid. And then Jesus has the audacity to say that the kingdom of God is somehow wrapped up in this. Our world, our economy, everything we do is set up so that debts are repaid. We don't want to see anyone get away with doing something wrong. If someone breaks the law, we're not interested in mandatory minimums. We want the book thrown at them. As the judge gavels, as the judge's gavel falls, we want to hear guilty and we want the maximum sentence handed out. It's like comedian Ron White says about the criminal justice system in Texas. If you come to Texas and you kill someone, we'll kill you back. The stories that are told by Jesus are called parables. Parables, like we told the kids, are heavenly examples of an earthly truth. Though these stories aren't so simple, Jesus paints a picture for how the kingdom of God, the grace of God, and the judgment of God are different from the ways of the world. Jesus, as the Gospels show us, was a talker. There's no getting around that. As he traveled with his disciples, he taught about the kingdom of God, and he taught them how the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of Caesar. The kingdom of God is different from the empire. So through conversations with his disciples, through confusing parables, and even through confronting the religious leaders of the temple, Jesus was proclaiming time in and time out that the kingdom of God had arrived, and the kingdom of God was different from the kingdom they were living in. Yet much of what Jesus says leaves us scratching our head, pulling our hair. But in these confusing stories, in these confusing moments, we find the good news of the gospel. So between now, September 17th, and the end of November, we are going to take a deep dive into these stories and teachings of Jesus. These are the stories and the sayings that leave us scratching our head and responding with, He said, What? He's a storyteller. But we, but we often see ourselves in the stories. Yet Jesus never comes straight out and says, Hey, disciples, listen, this is a parable, and it's about you. Jesus doesn't need to say this because we naturally recognize ourselves. 
And at times, we will misidentify ourselves in the story in the same ways that we watch shows like Ted Lasso and like to think of ourselves as a quirky, fun Ted, or maybe we're Coach Fury. All the while, our family and friends know that we're just a grump named Roy. Jesus' parables are a window through which we can see the, out, the world outside of ourselves. And yet, because it's a window, because there's glass in a window, we can catch a glimpse, a reflection of ourselves in the story. Some of you might think of yourselves as the king. One by one, hauling your servants into your office, your influential, and all the people coming into your office owe you a debt. A debt because of what you've done for them, or a debt because of what they tried to do to you in tearing you down. Others are relatively powerless, and you have incurred a debt. And that debt is paid to debt. Your name is listed on too many places, on too many ledger sheets, and the debt you owe is going to take a lifetime and then some to repay. Some parables will show us something about God. And then there are parables like the parable of the unforgiving servant, where we will bypass God and we will make ourselves the villain or even the hero of the story. One of the reasons the parable of the unforgiving servant makes us want to make a narrative about us is because the world that we live in is full of indebtedness and not so much mercy. And because debt is up and mercy is down, we hear these stories in the news about other people offering forgiveness. And we are reeled in because between our need to be forgiven and our need to forgive others and our need to forgive ourselves, along with the dreariness of the news that we receive day in and day out, to hear of someone else extending forgiveness and mercy. Well, friends, that gives us hope. Forgiveness transforms not only our relationships. Trans forgiveness not only transforms us. Tr forgiveness transforms the world. At the beginning of our scripture reading, Peter went to Jesus and said, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody who has sinned against me? Seven times? But Jesus answers, not seven, but seven times 70, or 77, depending on the translation. And that mirrors the way that Christ has taught his disciples to pray. It's the same prayer we pray every single week. We're going to pray it in just a few moments. We say, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us of our, our debts, or the ways in which we have sinned against God and one another. Forgive us of those, God, just as we forgive others who trespass, who sin against you and against us. We pray for forgiveness, and we pray that we can extend forgiveness to others, and still we are surprised, even overwhelmed, when forgiveness makes the headlines, or better yet, when someone forgives us. Maybe part of the problem is with the parable itself. I'm not saying Jesus is the problem. I'm saying it's the parable. We begin with what we thought was a merciful king, but by the end, he's gone full goodfellas, ordering torture and fingernails to be pulled. The king's mercy is short-lived, and such is the kingdom of God, Jesus says. 
We hear stories like the parable of the unforgiving servant. And then we hear stories like the shooting at Mother Emmanuel AME. We think that the perpetrators in these stories deserve what they have coming. They deserve the chair and then more. But that's an extreme example, right? Maybe something more personal. Maybe there's a family or a friend who's closer than family, and that person wronged you. They owe you money, an actual monetary debt. Maybe they've done something to you. Maybe they don't even realize that they did it to you, but they've wronged you. Their sin harmed you. And forgiveness is the last thing on your mind. What are you supposed to do? Forgive seven times? Seventy times? Seven times seventy? This is a parable about the kingdom of God, but it's also a parable about us. We are not the un... We are, sorry, we are the unmerciful servant. We want pity and mercy for ourselves all the while. We are not. We cannot extend the same to others. So what's to be done with us? Forgiveness for us, for others, is not easy. At times we don't want to forgive, and at others we want nothing less than to be forgiven. St. Paul's right. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God through our sin. So St. Paul would also remind us, though, that we have to remember who told this parable. Who is the one speaking? Jesus was asked about forgiveness. Lord, if a member of the church, if a member of the congregation sins against me, how many times do I have to forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven, but seven. And who has obeyed? Who has forgiven that person or themselves for that one thing that we can't seem to let go of? Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, and it's a big but, so you know that it doesn't lie, the glory of God is just that. We have fallen short of the glory of God, and it is God's glory. It is Christ's glory. And God has forgiven us 77 times, and then some. God has forgiven me 77 times, and then some. And God has forgiven you 77 times, and then some. In accepting the forgiveness extended to us by God, we die to our own desires, and we live in the light of Christ's glory, of God's glory. God's grace and glory raises the dead, and none of our debts, none of our sins are an obstacle. None are significant enough to stop that kind of power. None are significant enough. None are powerful enough to stop the mercy of God.